Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily. Hi. Good morning. And good morning or good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are in America and the world. It is a week when we are seeing uh, a new character emerge on the stage who we have not seen very much of. Brand new character. weeks and months. He's like a fresh, you know, a spring chicken. I actually don't know that anyone's ever used that phrase to describe who we're talking about. We're talking about Joe Biden, so spring chicken may not be exactly it, but it feels like a fresh face. He's a fresh face. He's, uh, I don't know, yeah, he, is he spry? Does he have a new spring in his step? Mm. Maybe what, all we can say about him is that he's there. He's appeared. That's... Honestly, that's more than we could have said two weeks ago. So being there, an improvement in the 2020 race for the White House. Joe Biden has emerged over the last few days to do what any candidate would have done in in any half a day in the six months leading up to the election. But this year, with the world upside down as it is, it feels like a real novel movement worth talking about on our podcast because he has given two public press appearances. What a marvel, what a wonder, what a cause for pause in our news cycle. Well, I both get excited about it and I get a little bit of tense when Mm. I see him talking. I feel like I'm out on the tightrope with Joe Biden. What's making you tense about it? Well, I don't, I want him, all the words to line up. Sure. And, you know, I want it to come out smooth and I want to feel some level of, uh, you know, that he's relaxed and he's got this. What did you feel right? when you saw him? Did you feel those things? Well, there was the one clip where he says, uh, you know, people are asking about his, uh, whether he's um, mentally fit enough, whether he gets checked out, right, and uh, for his cognitive capabilities. And he says, I'm excited to, you know, compare my cognitive capabilities to that of my opponent. It was a good soundbite. Yeah, it was a good soundbite. I felt good about that. And uh, of course, right after um, uh, Trump's tried to uh, create a narrative that this was a complete um, phony press uh, um, conference in which all the reporters were somehow in on it and it was all scripted. Eric Trump had a field day with that. Eric Trump is, it's unbelievable that a guy who is uh, unimpressive as him has a microphone in this country as large as he does. Welcome to 2020, Joe. Ouch. I mean, at least, you know, well, anyway, we don't have to get into all that. But yes, Joe Biden uh, seems to be emerging. And I have been thinking a lot about Joe Biden and the uh, concept of timing. I, I keep putting in my own uh head trying to put my head into his campaign manager's head Mm. and thinking about you've got to pick your moments to come out right i think this rope-a-dope thing that we've been talking about in recent weeks has actually been working it is a thing that has worked for him Mm. you know let let trump be trump and ruin his own polling and you sit back but at some point you have to come forward but you have to pick your spots and this week he picked his spots with news that trump overlooked or didn't know about uh, the fact that uh, the Russians may have been paying the Taliban to target and kill U.S. soldiers, Mm. right? And uh, so I saw that that was like a little bit of a surprise. Oh, Joe Biden's actually going to talk about that. And he went on the offensive on that subject. Well, there 
he has to. Like, this is an issue that every single person in this country, if it is true, should be outraged by. It's an issue that could potentially move the needle amongst members of his base that we thought were sort of immovable. It's horrifying if this is if this is true. And so my only thought over the last week is like, are Democrats going to be effective enough in messaging this? The message seems so clear to me, but Democrats are not um, the most effective in terms of their uh, messaging and their ad making, particularly so over the last uh, four to six years. And I just... Oh, there's my dog. There's my dog. There she is. There that she is. is. The, she agrees. That's she, probably what she's saying is she agrees with me that the Democrats are not being effective. She wants to raise her voice and lend a hand to the Democrats making uh, these ads and messages. I just think that there are endless possibilities of how they can message about this from now until November. The question is, are they effectively going to do that? Right. And the... And the you know, my theory, and I agree with him, I, I totally agree with him about everything he's saying. My informed, uh, semi-informed theory is that uh, this news actually probably emerged with the Bolton book and these military um, generals and leaders who have come out against Trump and worried about their own military, you know, their culture that they come from, um, you know, that here the Democrats have been handed um, a, a a pretty um, significant uh, piece of information to go after the president with, probably from people that are not even traditionally in their own party. Uh, we need Joe Biden to have the same level of bark and bite as your dog. Barbara Walters, Fox Eisenberg, has a lot to say and a lot that, that Joe Biden could learn from. Yes. So today, uh, I'm bringing on a guest named Jake Tapper. Perhaps you've heard of him. I thought it rings a bell. Yeah. He is the anchor for a show called The Lead on CNN. He's uh, uh, Everybody knows uh, that if you've ever flipped on CNN, there is a 98% chance you've probably seen him and know of him already. He uh, is also, on the side, uh, where he finds the time, I don't know, a novelist, right? And a uh, writer of nonfiction books, and one in particular, The Outpost, was a, uh, a book that he reported and wrote about one of the most uh, kind of horrible and violent battles in the Afghan war, and about this uh, platoon of soldiers who uh, fought and lost um, many of their comrades um, in a kind of, um, uh, you know, almost like... Uh, Guns of Navarone, sort of like, like you know, the last stand sort of battle. And I saw the movie recently, and it was like a white knuckle, very stressful movie to mm. watch, I must say. Um, but in the course of that, uh, Jake Tapper got to know these soldiers so well. They're, they're friends of his now, mm. so the, the ones who survived. And he has such an emotional connection to these guys who he's whose story he told. And so when the news came over the transom that— the Russians may have been paying the Taliban to go out into the field and kill these guys for money. And that Trump may have known about this for months and did nothing. Trump, the one that we have seen plenty of ample evidence uh, 
to think that is in the pocket of the Russians. Uh, you know, this is significant uh, news, like we've been talking about. If you know Joe Biden could wield this, if he wielded it properly, would be uh, you know very effective in letting people know what they should already know, which is that um, Trump is a horrendous leader and possibly a corrupt one and possibly a puppet of some kind. I mean, I'm, I don't want to be going to conspiracy world. You always feel like you are when you're talking about this, but the evidence keeps piling up. In any event, Jake Tapper is going to talk about that on this interview, and he's also going to talk about the media's uh, role and, to some degree, culpability in, uh, you know, propping up Trump. Trump loves attention. The media gives it to him. And Jake Tapper is on TV every day talking about Donald Trump like the rest of us are. And so, but we can't get out of this binary we've been trapped in. Mm. But the good good news might be, as we're going to talk about here, is that uh, that relationship, maybe that relationship, maybe that symbiotic thing that we've been trapped in is starting to fracture and break because the coronavirus is, as we've said in the past, now more famous than Trump. Mm. And we have to focus on our life and death uh, news before we get to our dumb Trump news of the day. Well, speaking of dumb Trump news and life and death news, do you want to get to the interview? Let's go to the interview. Wait, before uh, we go, before we go, everyone just wear your masks. Everyone stay at home. What is happening now is no different than what happened in April. So don't behave differently than you would have at the end of March or beginning in April. Just take care of yourselves, take care of everybody else, and listen to this great interview that Joe has done with Jake Tapper. Please follow that advice. Jake Tapper, welcome to Inside the Hive. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, your talking to us right now from your home in Washington, D.C., is that right? That, well, it's my home and studio uh, now, but yeah, I'm yeah, house in DC. Right, and um, you're now doing your own makeup. <laughs> is that right? Well, I've been. I've been I, 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 it's true. That is correct. I have. You know, when you're a correspondent uh, on the road, you do your own makeup all the time. Right. Uh, you know, one one is not uh, to the anchor desk born, so uh, <laughs> it's not the first time I've ever uh, I've ever done my own makeup. Um, but it's certainly certainly when I was younger, I needed it less. So, yeah. Yes. Were you a, a Kiss fan as a kid? No. You know what? All my classmates uh, were huge Kiss fans. Huge. Yeah. But I was an Elvis fan, so uh, I went in a different direction. But but I know. But I knew Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Frehley, Peter Chris. I mean, I you know I got a lot of information from my friends' fandom. Right. I think that you being a, this must have been in the eighties, right? That you were an Elvis fan. 70s, 70s 70s wow well i'm 50 i'm 51 so yeah so like in the i mean i think he i think he had died and that probably helped yeah propel him into my life but yeah that's a very um that's a very interesting uh, insight into jake tapper right there ladies and gentlemen help <laughs> you know uh young young you were uh, kind of uh makes you one of those like young old people you know, you were like, I a, think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's fair. I never really got into the punk scene. You know, all these people were going down to see Rocky Horror uh, at the TLA in Philadelphia. And that, that had literally no appeal to me. Although I would go to the TLA to see this is the theater of the living arts. This is like a big art theater on South yeah. Street in Philadelphia. I would go, I would go there to see 
actual movies like Blood Simple or, or uh, you know, Rear Window. Yes. Right. And uh, you were a something of a young cinephile. And I was interested to see that in your um, biography that you were uh, a film student briefly at USC. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. After Dartmouth, I did a semester at USC. Uh, I really do love film. Um, I don't know that uh, I was really cut out to dive into the industry uh, at that point uh, as a producer or um, writer or anything like that. But I'm excited that I've, I've, I've come to it in a roundabout way uh, later in life. I was going to say, you've come full circle. It only took you, you know, 30, 40 <laughs> years, but you're, you're good now. Well, listen, I watched the movie a couple of days ago. Talk about it like a white knuckle viewing experience. I was like, yeah. I was very stressed out after I watched The Outpost, which is the movie that you had now a producer credit on. On You wrote the book uh, that the movie was based on, the 2012 book, The Outpost, An Untold Story of American Valor. Incredible acting in this by Scott Eastwood and this guy, Caleb Landry Jones. Can you tell me which character Caleb Landry Jones plays? Sure. He plays uh, Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, um, who was one of the two men awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions that day, October 3rd, 2009. Uh, Scott Eastwood plays a guy, interestingly enough, named Clint, uh, Clint Romache, uh, who is the other guy awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions that day. And in fact, um, the Battle of Cop Keating, one of the most decorated of the war, uh, it's the first time since the Vietnam War that two men were awarded the Medal of Honor, two live men, I should say, were awarded the Medal of Honor for the same battle, um, Black Hawk Down, there were two awarded it posthumously, um, but but it's the first time since Vietnam that two guys from the same battle who were still living were given the Medal of Honor. It was a very horrible battle and uh, a lot of death and a lot of opportunity for incredible selflessness. Right. Well, this all comes out in the movie, and it's like, um, you know, it reminded me a little bit of like. Um, you know, it's a classical war movie on one level, and on the other, it has a f documentary feel to it as well. It reminded me a, a little bit of the Sebastian uh, Younger, uh, Tim Harrington, uh, you know, documentary about soldiers in a in a kind of uh, remote outpost in Afghanistan. And the question you're asking yourself throughout this movie, uh, you know, every time a soldier steps out of his tent, you're like, "Don't do it," you know, um, but is why are these guys here? Why are they in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by three mountain ranges and a river, and just sitting there? You know, you you can't, you know, they're sort of there to kind of win, win the hearts and minds of the local Afghans, but it's kind of, you know, they're opportunistic at best, you know, but it's not, uh, you're not, it, everything's unclear, even to the soldiers themselves. They ask, oh, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? Nobody knows. Did you figure out what the answer was to that? Like, why were they there? I did. First of all, that was the reason why I set out to write the book was I wanted to know why these men were there, why these eight guys were killed. And everybody kept saying, everybody in the media and the military ultimately as well said that there was no reason to put this outpost at the bottom of three steep mountains. Why were they there? And so I did set out to, to find that out. Uh, it's interesting that it reminded you of Restrepo um, by the great Sebastian Younger and the late Tim Hetherington because it, it takes place not really that far from it. Um, that, that was in the Korengal Valley. And this is maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 miles, 25 miles away in a different province, but right next door uh, in, in uh, Nuristan province. 
The reason was, was because in 2006, when they set up Combat Outpost Keating, the goal at that point was counterintelligence, I'm sorry, counterinsurgency. And, and the goal of counterinsurgency is to make the Afghan people connected to the U.S. and not to the insurgents. And the way to do that was to give villagers um, new power plants and new roads. And that's the idea behind um, counterinsurgency. It's hearts and minds. It's winning the hearts and minds. Right. And in 2006, when they set up this outpost and um, General, now retired General, but then I think Colonel McNicholson uh, was the guy in charge, they set up all these little outposts all over northeastern Afghanistan, which is right where near the Pakistan border where all the Taliban were coming from, um, or many of the Taliban, I should say. And the reason that they did it at the bottom of steep mountains as opposed to the top is because most of the helicopters were in Iraq. And in order to have a base that you could resupply, uh, you needed to have access to the road. And it was really just that simple. The helicopters were in Iraq because that was the favorite war in 2006. Mm. And so in order to set up these little bases in order to reach the Afghan people, which was the goal of the mission at that point, they had switched to nation building. Uh, they needed to be near the road. And I met the guy. I mean, I met people who helped pick out the location and they, you know, they felt you could tell very guilty about it. Right. The, the book actually starts and the movie almost started this way, but then they changed it at the end. The book starts with an intelligence officer uh, and, and the book's nonfiction. It's true. Warning his commanders do not set up an outpost in this place. Yeah. Wow. A, guy, a guy named Jacob Whitaker do not set up an outpost and he war games, all sorts of scenarios. And in every one people get killed, everyone gets killed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems obvious to us now. And I think that the military has learned don't put bases at the bottom of steep mountains. Respepo was at least halfway up the mountain. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the reason. I mean, you talk about the military, uh, you know, quote unquote, learning lessons. And even during the time when the whole country was paying attention to the Iraq and Afghan wars, when it was at the top of our news feeds, you know, um, we knew, you know, you and I are of a certain gen. I'm almost 50. I'm close to your age, but like, I'm not quite as old as you, but you know, the, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we grew up with books about Vietnam, right? Yeah. Bright shining lie by Neil Sheehan, you know, dispatches, Michael Hare. These are books that if you're a journalist, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of the things they carried, you had yep. to, yeah, you had to read these and, 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 you know, you would, would have thought that we would have uh, understood all of this. And here it was almost like, you know, same thing all over again. Um, well, exactly. I mean, and the same, what they used to say about the Vietnam War, that it wasn't a, you know, a 10-year war. It was 10 one-year wars in a row. Right. That is the same problem that they had and have in Afghanistan. The idea that because you're constantly rotating people in and out and there's very little institutional knowledge, people don't know what works, what doesn't work. And they just start, they start the slate clean and wipe the slate clean and make this, make a lot of the same mistakes over and over and over again. Right. And, and the big, you know, the reason those journalists I mentioned were, were well known was because they kind of sidestepped uh, the official story that people were getting in Washington um, and went and saw things for themselves often. And you had no real connection to war reporting in a real way at the time that you got involved in this story, right? Um, you, no, not at all. And so uh, tell me a little bit about um, 
you know, you interviewed what close to 200 people for that book. Oh, more, more than 200 people, 225 about. Right. I mean, that's, that's an all in sort of endeavor right there, you know? And I, you had to have had, it, it became a personal journey for you. You've said that it's the single proudest piece of journalism you've done in your life. Um, I, I suspect that remains true. So, you know, tell me about the relationships that you developed with these soldiers and, and what was the sort of, um, you know, not having come from that culture or grown up or been in the military and maybe not known a lot of people in the military, what was the biggest revelation about getting to know these people? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, it, it's true that, uh, this is this remains the single piece of journalism I've, I'm proudest of. Um, it, it was a real obsession of mine writing this book for years. Um, from the moment I heard about the outpost being attacked, which was uh, in the hospital recovery room with my wife, I was holding my son, uh, Jack, who had just been born literally the day before the attack. And somewhere in that week, uh, holding my son, hearing about eight other sons taken from this earth was something poignant. And I can't explain it other than to say, I know it sounds corny and I would question it if I heard it from somebody else, except I, you know, I then spent years writing this book and it started with um, reading everything I could about it, about the outpost. And there really honestly wasn't much. Um, the, the, um, the army did an after action report that came out, I think the following February. And I read that voraciously uh, the redacted version that was released to the public. And then there was an article in the Times based on some WikiLeaks. Um, but other than that, uh, there really wasn't a lot. And then so, you know, the guys after this horrible attack, uh, the guys from 361, service members, still had to start, still had to do a full year uh, in Afghanistan. So um, they'd only been there for a few months. So they went to the next, uh, the closest place, Forward Operating Base Bostic, and did a lot of the rest of the rotation there. When they got back in June of 2010, I started cold calling them. Um, first, I read an article about the mom of one of them, this woman, Mary Henry, whose son, Eric Harder, uh, was there and she had, she was putting together a reunion. And I reached out to her and then through her got in touch with Eric. And then Eric put me in touch with a different guy named John Hill. And it just went from there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a, a, anybody who's written about the military knows the military is its own worst enemy when it comes to helping journalists tell their stories. Uh, I never got a list of all the soldiers who served there from the army or from the Pentagon. I mean, I had, I had to do it all my, myself and you're right. I started from like, I covered, you know, troop rotations, uh, from the, from the comfort of the North lawn of the white house when I was white house correspondent for ABC news. And I'd been to Iraq and I'd done like a short tour there, uh, as a journalist, uh, for about two weeks, maybe two or three weeks with ABC news right after Bob, uh, Woodruff um, and others were, were grievously injured, but I hadn't really done this. So it was a, just a massive undertaking. And I guess what I learned the most was um, just how much of a chasm there is between the 1% who serve and sacrifice. And it's not just the people who serve abroad, but also their, their wives and their husbands and their kids and their parents uh, who just, you know, walking on eggshells every day until their loved one gets home. And uh, just how much of a chasm is there is between that 1% and the 99% of us, the rest of us, who don't really pay much attention necessarily, who, you know, don't really think much about the stuff. 
um, in terms of like sending troops here, sending troops there, and how much that chasm hurts uh, both sides of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that, you know, it, it would be impossible for you not to have developed kind of a, an emotional relationship with some of these people, they're giving you these incredibly vulnerable stories um, about their own, you know, near death experiences or the death of some of their best friends. I mean, and I imagine you're still friends with them to this day. I mean, yeah, not all of them, obviously there are hundreds of them, but, but um, some of them are really, really good friends of mine that I talk to all the time uh, or text with or email all the time. Eric Carter, the first one I talked to, has uh he stayed with me and my family uh when he's been to dc he's he's a good friend um and uh yeah i'm in touch with a lot of them on on um on facebook and 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 in the normal way one would be in touch with people and some of these friendships are among the most meaningful to me that i have um when when uh, the movie when rod lurie who's a west point graduate and made the movie and really did an incredible job uh, I think this is his masterpiece, and I was—I'm a big fan of his film, um, *The Last Castle*, uh, with Gandolfini and Ruffalo and Redford. But, but I think this is his best movie. When he, when I first met him, I, I, I and I said to him, you know, you're—we're going to have—we're going to get these people involved in the movie, the the troops and the Gold Star families, and they're going to become parts of your life the way that they're parts of mine. Uh, I don't think he knew what he was in for, but but they are parts of his life now as well, and. Uh, we had a screening, we had a special screening for the Gold Star families and some of the veterans last October around the 10 year anniversary of the battle. The movie was not 100 percent done. They were they were still doing CGI and sound. We had a special screening and Millennium Films uh, flew in a bunch of the Gold Star families from as far away as Alaska and uh, and showed them the movie because we wanted them to be a part of it and know what was coming out. And that was a. Uh, very intense but very meaningful experience yeah this is inside the hive hi it's radika jones editor-in-chief of vanity fair if you love digging into the week's political headlines subscribe to vanity fair our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of congress just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. You know, given, you know, this movie really makes clear, it gives, you're very emotionally connected to them by the end of the movie. You know, and it really imbues them with a sense of, you know, dignity. You know, they're they're kind of rough guys. It's a frat house sort of environment they're in. But then, when the pressure comes on, uh, they become they become often cases heroic. Tell me what it was like for you uh, when the news came out just this week or last week that you know Russians may have been paying. Uh, you know, Taliban to kill American soldiers. I mean, I can't imagine that information came to you as a cold piece of news information. To you, it comes to you as somebody who understands what that really means. What did you think and what do you make of that news? Well, it made me really angry. Um, uh, 
it doesn't surprise me that the Russians would be doing this um, as U.S. intelligence is debating right now how conclusive this evidence is. I mean, the Russians have been intervening, disrupting, uh, trying to hurt Americans for years uh, there. I mean, they've been arming the Taliban, so it's not a surprise that they would then like throw some money onto the table. Um, but then the president's reaction, I just think, um, you know, I asked John Bolton about it that morning, uh, Sunday morning, I guess the story broke on a Saturday. And, uh, you know, he just pointed out that President Trump's reaction was all about him. Yeah, He wasn't briefed. He didn't know. You know, now he's calling it a hoax or fake news. Or Do something. you believe that? <clears throat> Do I believe that he didn't know? Yeah. I believe that he... Uh, I believe that the information was presented to him and I believe he either didn't read it or didn't remember it or didn't pay attention. I I don't have a difficult time believing that. I mean, I don't think he's the most hands-on guy in the world and not the most detail oriented. I don't, I think even his, with the exception of those paid to lie for him, I think even his fans would, would agree. Um, But uh, beyond that, I mean, even, even if it were true, I mean, the reaction I would have hoped would have been something like, you know, I don't remember, you know, I did not get this information or I do not recall this information or we're getting to the bottom of this information. But know this, if it's true, we will do everything in our power to punish those responsible. Know this. There is nothing I take more seriously than the lives of our men and women fighting abroad. I mean, just that reaction is so absent, but not surprising. I mean, if you read the Bolton book, there are parts in it where John Kelly then the White House Chief of Staff, Marine General, whose son was killed in Afghanistan, who I can't imagine what he's going through right now. Right. That's honestly one of the first things I thought about is, oh, my God, what is John Kelly thinking? But there's a passage in the book where um, he talks about how, in his view, in John Kelly's view, Trump doesn't care about these guys. He doesn't care about soldiers on the front lines. Right. Which is an incredibly damning thing for a White House Chief of Staff to say. Yeah. And, you know, the, the irony, though is you know these these soldiers you depict in your book and that who are depicted in this film you know they have there's a sense of decency and dignity with them but the reality is that a lot of the military rank and file still support Donald Trump who you know shows no respect or decency or dignity i mean and how do you square that and and is has it changed in terms of you know just the people you talk to and what's the status of that relationship well, I mean, yes, you're right that a lot of people in the military lean right or but I mean, I would say like knowing now hundreds of troops um, that it's also fair to say that they run the gamut from far left to far right to libertarian. Yeah. Um, although I don't dis- disagree with your, your basic premise, I will I would say that uh, as a general rule, officers tend to be a little bit more um, liberal than enlisted men right. um, and women. Um, I think that people are not necessarily a hundred percent up to speed on, I mean, I think people are living their lives and they're not in the weeds of day-to-day news the way that you and I are or our listeners to this podcast might be. And I would say that, um, you know, Donald Trump is going to get a majority of Republican votes in November. Um, and I would imagine most, if not all of those people are people who say that they support the troops and, uh, you know, just support a strong foreign policy or whatever. So I think the tribalism when it comes to politics is just very strong, whether it's left or right. Uh, I, 
to me, you know, when Trump attacked John McCain, and I understand that John McCain to a lot of conservatives was a heretical figure, you know, a liberal, even though he wasn't a liberal, but you know no. what I mean. Um, no. And, uh, but when he attacked John McCain for being captured, for being a prisoner of war, I mean, that's to me like when he crossed a line that I cannot understand um, why anybody would express such a sentiment. Um, and why it's, it's, and why people would forgive him that on the right, where tr- they're traditionally boosters of the military. Uh, I've never understood how they could get over that, but they've gotten over a lot of things, right? Um, yep. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about this recently uh, because we have this bombardment of news about coronavirus. There's a spikes in illness in Texas, Florida, and states that have tr- traditionally been conservative strongholds and people wonder, you know, on Twitter and social media, oh, when are they going, when are facts going to matter, <laughs> right, to certain constituents of of Donald Trump's. And I, I was thinking about a couple of years ago, well, I saw the, the Carl Bernstein piece on CNN uh, this week, which was pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, um, and I thought about Carl Bernstein and Woodward and Bernstein and how for uh, j- journalists of our generation, you know, they were uh, kind of the models for what was possible, that you could speak truth to power and change the way people thought and saw their leaders, right? Yeah. And now we've had like dozens of Watergate-like scandals. Two years ago, the New York Times exposed all of the Trump uh, family tax schemes that had been done over the years. It was this massive piece, right? It moved the needle not a whit, right? Do you see any signs that, you know, uh, that that could ch- that that might change now? I mean, are facts regaining any traction in this political discourse? And do you deg- agree with that, that no amount of reporting seems to be able to change the hearts and minds of just of American voters. Well, I mean, it is dispiriting when you see polls that suggest that more people, more Republicans believe President Trump than believe, say, the CDC uh, or the NIH. Uh, that said, I mean, I don't know that it has had no effect. I mean, President Trump is incredibly unpopular. His approval rating is very low. Uh, and, you know, I, look, I don't know what's going to happen in November. And certainly we've all learned from 2016 that don't even rely on the polls before the election returns come in, because who knows what's going to happen. But, you know, it doesn't look particularly good for him. You know, I, I see people challenging things that he says and does, people on the right. Um, and I see, you know, very low approval for him nationally. I can't get my head around the idea that, you know, when I read um, people's Facebook posts or Instagram posts and I see people just mindlessly defending things that are indefensible, yeah. uh, I can't get my head around it. But, you know, this is a very politically divided nation and people are not inclined uh, nor are they particularly encouraged by some corner in some corners to think independently or 
try to consider the other person's point of view. And uh, I think that's one of the things going on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's not only a phenomenon on the right, it is also a phenomenon on the left. But um, right now, obviously, is more pronounced. And, and, uh, and you can't, you know, there are people on the left, for example, who uh, don't trust vaccines. Uh, and there are people, it's this, this phenomenon of young people, uh, younger than old timers like you and me, uh, packing bars, not wearing masks. That's not just conservatives in, you know, Tallahassee. I mean, that's liberals in Manhattan. It's all over the country. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I do think some of the behavior that is not tied to facts uh, is nonpartisan. But that said, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of the anti-scientific, anti-factual viewpoint is is very much so uh, on a present on the right and and uh, and dispiriting. Absolutely. Well, and I'm also talking about what motivates you. I mean, you're somebody who talks about, uh, you know, you have this uh, respect for the truth. Let's find out what the truth is. And then day after day after year after year, you're bringing forth truth or what you believe to be true and holding people to account on uh, cable TV. And the best you can hope for is it turns into like a, you know, a Twitter meme for like a day and a half. And then it doesn't move the needle. I mean, do well, you- but I don't know that I agree with that, though. I mean, first of all, I, I mean, the Twitter meme, that's not my goal, nor is it what I think. No, no. And I'm just saying it's dispiriting. I mean, I'm yeah, one- but I mean, like, but we, you know, right now we are doing. I feel we are doing important journalism uh, on my shows, and our ratings are really good, so people are watching. That, like, that's the only measure, but it is being rewarded in that regard. Right now, people are choosing to watch my show uh, and not MSNBC or Fox uh, in terms of uh, our, our wins in the demographic. People in the key demo are watching our show. And um, I mean, and, and sometimes the, the work product itself is its own reward. And, you know, I can't hope for, um, I mean, I, you know, my goal is not to have politician X defeated or politician Y uh, elected. I mean, I know that the Biden people are not particularly eager to put him on my show either um, because they suspect I'll ask questions that are uncomfortable. So, I mean, I just have to do the best job I can and hope that that is in itself a reward. Well, I mean, that's where it gets interesting. The reason I brought up Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, I know you've known and met these guys and, you know, that we're not living in that 1973 world anymore, obviously. But, you know, it's been said that the media has a kind of symbiotic relationship with Trump and that ratings are really the only needle that's getting moved. Um, and, you know, I, I'm thinking now about that Jonathan Mahler piece from 2017, where he actually talked about CNN and Jeff Zucker, uh, right. you know, having their ratings problem solved by Donald Trump, right? That uh, the strange symbiotic relationship between Zucker and this president. Um, and... You know, what did you what do you make of that? I mean, do you have a critique of that? Or do you agree that there's a, a kind of um, inescapable issue there? Uh, it's a very complicated issue because, I mean, that Mahler piece also went into the fact that Jeff and 
Donald and President Trump had known each other for years and that uh, because of The Apprentice. Right. That was um, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I think that um, the uh, first of all, I, I don't look at Donald Trump and think, oh, this is great for ratings. I mean, that just is not even remotely something that passes through my head. Oh, super. This is aw- great. He just. No, but you're just, but you're inside of Trump. that. I mean, you're you're sort of, tr- you know, a, a torchbearer for a certain kind of um, news news delivery, uh, a, a certain kind of reporting. You know, it's the mold of Edward R. Murrow. I mean, and and you have, you know, sort of some cable instincts. And, and how to, you know, um, make the deliver the news, but, um, but on some level, you're also sort of trapped in this larger, um, well, thing. We're all we're all living in the United States of America with President Donald Trump. Um, that's inescapable. I mean, I think that those people who um, see Donald Trump as the lead story every day, no matter what. Um, are missing out on stories. I, he does not haunt my dreams. He does not. Uh, oh, but doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he he does. He, <laughs> no, um, but but he. It's not like I think. Like for instance, since this um, pandemic began, um, I generally do not lead with President Trump, even if he has said something completely preposterous. I don't necessarily think, oh, that's the lead today. Uh, quite the contrary, actually. We start almost uh, as a default talking about the virus, doing updates around the country about what the status is, going to Sanjay Gupta, talking to him about um, the latest medical news. That's generally our A block. Quite often, we don't get to Trump until the C block, the third block in the show. So I guess I think that those who have viewed the news cycle only through the lens of Donald Trump is the be all and end all. Um, but are the view, but the, yeah, but the viewers um, have come as a result of that. I mean, that's the sort of like trap of the reality TV news world we're living in under Trump. But and, I'm saying we're doing better now with the viewers. We're getting more viewers now. Without not leading, leading with not that. leading with Trump. I right. mean, sometimes we do like um, I can't remember exactly if we led, led with him the morning or the afternoon after he suggested uh, or mused about ingesting um, disinfectant. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, sometimes I mean, I'm not saying we never will. I mean, obviously, sometimes it rises to the level of an A block, but. Yeah. That said, uh, more viewers are coming now. And maybe this goes when we're not doing that. Right. And maybe this goes to what I was saying earlier is like, you know, now that life and death may be the um, story rather than just everybody's outrage pro or against Trump. Um, maybe that uh, has uh, begun to um, change that symbiotic relationship. You know, one thanks or hopes and dreams. Um, I don't doubt, but just to put a period before you move on, because it sounds like you're about to move on to another topic. I don't doubt that if Joe Biden wins, and that's an if, ratings will go down. Of course. For everybody. Yeah. I don't doubt that for one second. Um, 
but that that doesn't affect how I cover anything. This is Inside the Hive. You know, the trend in the world and on CNN, frankly, uh, for some people in your position is to become uh, a little more forward in the way they deliver their news and interview people and become kind of like liberal heroes, right? I mean, the truth is the pressure on uh, people in the journalism business under Trump's time has been to uh, become more to play to the polarization. And I know you've, I think you've done a great job of um, not going there, but the pressure must be pretty high to feed that. I think the pressure was the highest. Um, first of all, I, I don't dispute your premise. Um, there, there, I mean, if you look at the silly day-to-day rewards memes, you know, uh, mediaite tweets, um, little things that people outside journalism don't necessarily pay attention to, but are that, you know, that serve as like, you know, cookies that your mom might give to you after school. Uh, Those little day-to-day rewards are completely built around a system of rewarding, uh, I don't know if I would call it liberal outrage, but anti-Trump outrage. Right. Um, so absolutely. I think it was strongest during <clears throat> the Russia investigation. And I think that that was strongest when, in my view, MSNBC, um, was writing a bunch of checks that the evidence didn't cash, uh, where they were basically saying this was going to lead to president Trump's downfall. He was guilty. Uh, every single uh, incremental development was treated um, right as if, as if uh, you know, like the arrest of the of the Cuban thieves in the Watergate Hotel, uh, Cuban burglars, I should say. And um, I think that there was a lot of pressure then, and and that was, by the way, the time that MSNBC was huge in the ratings. And right. then, and then the bottom fell out of that story, and they sank. Right. Um, but yeah, there, I remember feeling that pressure. Not pr- it's not pressure. It's just seeing what the competitor who's beating you. Yeah. Is well, doing. there's gravitational pull in that direction because that's where the audience, that's what they want to hear and see, right? In that I moment. Think that's true. But at the same time, I also knew, and we kept our feet on the ground. I feel like uh, that we did anyway. That that we we're going to treat this. We're not going to go anywhere where the facts don't go, and you know, we can talk about with informed people, we can, we can, we can discuss the news, but, um, I, I certainly thought that there was a lot of hyperventilating. I say that with the utmost respect on MSNBC, (laughs) that, that, that I, that I was concerned about both as, uh, as a journalist, because I thought that that was irresponsible and also as a competitor, it bothered me because it worked, but you know, there are things, all kinds of things that people can do to get a short term win. I mean, I see it in network news all the time. You can dumb everything down, not call a lie, a lie, not offend anybody, not take a risk of offending anybody, run kitten videos 
and you can get good ratings on broadcast broadcast evening news shows. But that's not a long-term play. Right. I would say that your contribution to the uh, news era we're in is what um, Taffy uh, Broadusser Ackner called um, the uh, JTWTFF, <laughs> right? The uh, Jake Tapper what, uh, WTF face, right? right. Um, which also was described in the Jonathan Mahler article I, I uh, mentioned earlier. There's a line in there about Jeff Zucker had good instincts uh, about your facial expressions, you know, getting them on camera uh, when you were interviewing Kellyanne Conway or whatever, and the, the disbelief face, right? Which I'm sure comes naturally, but then, you know. Uh, I'm not a good poker player. <laughs> um, you in the past have uh, been uh, lauded and awarded for um, doing presidential debates. Yeah. And um, I would take it that your plan this fall is to be a part of the coverage of election night, which all of that's going to be different than it's ever been before. Are, yeah. um, are you scheduled to moderate a debate this fall? What is the status of televised presidential debates? I don't know anything about anything uh, having to do with them. I'm watching Biden and Trump, the campaigns go back and forth about how many um, debates there will be and who they'll participate with. Um, you know, I, I know that, um, that's going to, it's going to be very difficult considering how much, uh, president Trump hates, uh, vocally certain members of the media and certain news channels and, and, and newspapers, um, to arrive uh, at any sort of moderator that, that, uh, they'll think is fair. Um, given the fact that the president thinks that Fox isn't fair enough to him, that yeah. One America News is the only reliable right. broadcast network. I have not heard anything. I've not been told anything. Um, obviously, I would be honored to moderate a debate. Um, uh, I've, you know, I've done some of them in the primary, but I've never done a presidential debate. But if it doesn't happen this time, um, I'm 51. I hope I get another shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you. Yes. And, uh, well, what is your kind of relationship with the white house nowadays do they it's like fine. you <laughs> i mean i don't know i mean i you know i i don't i mean i i think i have a fine relationship with them i mean i think they think i'm tough but uh i guess if you got sodium pentothal into them they'd probably admit that i'm fair I, you know before the trump era you know i people thought i was like people on the left thought i was a republican um, yeah. people thought I was some right wing conservative. I remember uh, that actually. I remember that. Yeah, that I, that I was a neocon and that, right. you know, because I was a tough reporter when it came, you know, I was a, I covered Obama and I tried to be fair and, and, uh, I did think that the media was soft on Obama. I mean, maybe understandably so, but, but, right. you know, given the fact that he was this trailblazing figure, uh, in somewhat cases, but I did think that we weren't as a, as an institution, we weren't questioning enough. And, um, so it's, so I do have, so it is weird for me, uh, in the Trump era for so many of the people who lauded me, not all of them, by the way, but so many of the people who lauded me to now call me like a left-wing hack or all this stuff. And it's just, it's bizarre. Um, cause I don't feel like I've changed at all. Uh, I, so, but in any case, um, 
I, I think that my relationship with the White House is fine. And I guess we'll see what happens. Um, I, I'm sure that if I were picked to moderate a debate, <clears throat> there would be a, a huge outcry from the right. Uh, or, but I mean, I also think that in some future world, when if I ever get to moderate a debate, a presidential debate, there would probably be a huge outcry from the left. I mean, I don't think the Biden people, for example, like I said, uh, I don't think I would make their, you know, top 10 list of people that they would like to have moderated debate. I mean, because I think that they think that I would be tough yeah. on. You've interviewed board. Biden before, right? Yeah, I interviewed him once in the last since he started running for president, I think once, once or twice, maybe twice. Yeah. I think I, I interviewed him once right Oh God, it all blurs together, doesn't it? Um, I interviewed him once right after the peace plan with the um, Taliban was announced. And I asked him about it and I had to correct him on it because he wasn't up to speed on it. And then his second time, uh, he coughed into his hands and I corrected him for that. So, so those, those are the two times that I, re I remember. But I, I know there were more substantive questions there as well. Right. But those are the two I remember. But yes, I have interviewed him. This is Inside the Hive. Yesterday, or to this morning, as we talk, it's a Wednesday uh, in July 1st, um, Trump is tweeting that um, Biden just had a press conference in which all of the questions were prearranged, that the press was in on some kind of... Um, yeah, it's a lie. Yeah, it's a lie. I just want to... We're confirming here with uh, Jake Tapper of CNN that not true. That's false. Well, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, Doug McElway, I think is his name, he's, he's, he reports for Fox. He used to be local... Um, ABC seven channel here, uh, the, uh, local ABC affiliate. Uh, and he asked Biden a question about cognitive decline. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically it was along the lines of I'm 60, I forget exactly. It was something like I'm 65 and I lose. Yeah. My yeah. Mind. I'm you know, 12 years like, younger than you. Yeah. Yeah. Like do you get checked out for cognitive decline? If you think that <laughs> you yeah. think that the Biden campaign were eager for a televised question about whether or not he gets uh, tested out for his cognitive facilities, uh, you know, and you, you got another thing coming. But, but I mean, I they were not uh, prearranged. Right. It's crazy. But you know, but this is the this is where we are right now. Is that the president will just say anything? Right. He'll just make it up, and it doesn't even register anymore. People won't even say anything about it because he just floods the zone with all these lies and. If it, Maggie Haberman had a great piece on this a couple of weeks ago, asking whether or not the president president's predilection for self-sabotage was was ultimately uh, just just going to be what d d does him in. Right. Donald Trump could win in November handily if he just stopped this nonsense, I think. Right. Well, um, that's that's what. Uh, but now he would have to uh, as soon as he begins to speak in some candid way, then he'd have to candidly deal with all of the terrible things he already said that were not true and the bad things he's done or irresponsible things he has not done. And so he has sort of, he's trapped in a way with his base, just feeding them this red meat. And I mean, yes and no, I hear what you're saying, but on earth too, let's say, you know, where Donald Trump is capable of rising to this moment and doing everything he needs to do in terms of the coronavirus and the racial healing and this and that, as opposed to what he's doing now. Right. You know, a week worth of 
I'm not, you know, that's history. I'm talking about the future. Yeah. That's history. I'm talking about the future. And reporters would, would give up. Yeah. They would. Yeah. You know, you know what we're like. Yeah. That, <laughs> yes. <laughs> a week, a week of beating us into the, a week of beating us into the ground with that's ancient history. You're like, it's, it was three days ago. That's ancient history. I'm looking forward. Let's talk about how we fix the problem, the coronavirus, and we heal this nation. A week of that and everybody would move on. I mean, not everybody, but you could get away with it. Well, it, it, the tweet we just discussed, by the time this podcast comes out on Friday, it will, nobody will remember it. <laughs> I mean, and that's the world we're living in. So, um, and I am just impressed, Jake Tapper, uh, that you uh, have the fortitude uh, to um, keep wanting to do it. You know, I often think like, I was thinking about this before I was going to interview you. Um, you're somebody who's right in the front row of this sort of maelstrom we're, we've been describing, this political news uh, warped world that we've been living in <laughs> for the last few years. And every day you're contending with it. Um, and, uh, you know, I would have to take a break, right? It's just so dispiriting to think that what you're producing for one, that the entire news cycle revolves around this guy, and then that no amount of information or news breaks or investigations that you can conduct, uh, you know, can can move the needle. Because I back to what we were saying earlier, I do think that partly we're in this business to move a needle of some kind, right? We want to um, have an impact of some kind, right? Ratings, okay. You know, that's good for the boss. But you personally, when you go to bed at night, it's got to be about something else one thinks, right? Okay. You want to know what it is? What? Because you, you, you really honestly, uh, I mean, this, you, you're pushing me toward in a revelatory place. So okay. I'll tell you. Um, I wrote this novel called uh, The Hellfire Club, and it takes place during the McCarthy era. And one of the things I did when I'm writing this novel, and it's a DC thriller, is I did a lot of research about the McCarthy era. And this was always going to be the plan. But then obviously once um, Donald Trump uh, became popular and then and then won, uh, I played it up a little bit more. Uh, McCarthy and Roy Cohn, the connective tissue between right. Joe McCarthy and Donald Trump. And one of the things that really stuck with me when I read about this history, about this era, is that you get one shot to do it whether you're a senator or a reporter or whatever. And, and when somebody in, you know, 2200 or whenever writes a thriller or writes a nonfiction book about this era, what are they going to see that I produced? What are my kids, Alice and Jack, who are 12 and 10, what are they going to see when they in 20, 30 years look back to see what daddy was doing during this time. Was daddy being tough? Was he standing up for the right things or was he not? Or was he just kind of going with the flow? Because you, you're right. Ratings don't matter. Nobody knows what Edward R. Murrow's ratings were. Nobody remembers what Walter Cronkite's ratings were. They just remember what they did and whether or not it made a difference or whether or not they remember it making a difference. Now, the truth of the matter is that Murrow was late to McCarthy. Hmm. He didn't do his broadcast until March 1954, four years after Margaret Chase Smith 
the senator from Maine, Republican, went on the floor of the Senate and gave her declaration of conscience speech. Hmm. And the truth is that Walter Cronkite was not even particularly early on pointing out that the Vietnam War uh, was a stalemate. Right. Yeah. Late in the game, really. He was pretty late, too. But they're both heroes. I don't mean to diminish what they did. Sure. But the point but the point is that somebody's going to go back and look, whether it's Alice and Jack or somebody I don't know or will never know. And I want to make sure that people understand that there were journalists standing up and saying that, you know, a U.S. president telling four congresswomen of color, three of whom born in the United States, all four citizens, telling them to go back where they came from is abjectly, empirically racist. And I want to make sure that people know that there are people on TV, on news, saying that. Because I don't know who's going to win in November, and I don't know what the world's going to look like in 20 years, but I know that my kids can go back and look at how I covered that, and they'll see that I called it racist. Jake Tapper of CNN, I want to thank you for coming on Inside the Hive today. That was a really illuminating conversation. I appreciate you engaging with these big questions today. Um, I need a drink. <laughs> We're gonna we'll get that drink one day. Um, you know, uh, we, sh- we should note that it's it's ten o'clock at night when we do this, so it's not inappropriate. Yeah, that does. We're not going to do morning cocktails, not yet. Um, we're not there yet. Um, all right. Well, listen. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll hope to have you on again. And I appreciate uh, everything you've said today. Thank you so much. It was an honor being here. It's a pleasure. I always love reading your stuff. So uh, it was a lot of fun, and I do hope. Someday, it will be safe for you and I to walk into a bar together and get a drink. And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Jake Tapper for coming on the show. And of course, my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation, please listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive, which you can find, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, especially our producer, Bob Tabador. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we'll see you next week.